All Rise, the Ashley Murphy murder trial with Frank Graney, a News Talk original podcast. A woman in her 20s has died following an assault in County Offaly. The incident happened along the Canal Bank at Cappenker in Tullamore at around four o'clock this afternoon. Breaking news, the arrest made on suspicion of murder of Ashling Murphy, the school teacher. Joseph Puska of Linali Grove, Mukla County Offaly, appeared before a special sitting of Tullamore District Court last night. On the afternoon of the 12th of January last year, Ashley Murphy, a 23-year-old primary school teacher, was killed while exercising along the banks of the Grand Canal in Tullamore. Josef Pushka, a 33-year-old Slovakian man, is on trial for her murder. He has pleaded not guilty. I'm Frank Graney, courts correspondent for News Talk. And I'm Ashling Moore, radio producer. I'll be in the Central Criminal Court for every minute of the Ashley Murphy murder trial. And every evening we'll bring you a factual, accurate and balanced account of what the jury hears on any given day. And only what the jury hears. It's their job to decide on the facts of this case and they'll do so based only on the evidence presented to them at trial. And I should say that if you happen to be one of the jurors on this trial, then you've already been warned not to follow any of the media coverage and that includes this podcast. This is All Rise, the Ashling Murphy murder trial. Welcome to episode 15 an unfamiliar environment. So we've come to the end of the evidence. As soon as the prosecution closed its case last Thursday, Josef Pushka took the stand in his defence. He insisted he had nothing to do with Ashling's murder and claimed he tried to help her after they were both attacked along the canal by a man with a knife. On Friday, the prosecution accused him of being a liar. Today, the jurors heard from the trial's final witness, a medical expert called on behalf of the defence, who raised a question mark over the confession Mr Pushka made to Gardaí in St James's Hospital in Dublin two days after Ashling was killed. With both sides now finished calling witnesses, the trial has entered its closing stages. And Frank, just one witness called today on behalf of the defence. Michael Bowman called a UK-based doctor called Dr Johan Grundling. That's right. Three weeks to the day since the jury was sworn in and today they heard from the final witness, the final piece of evidence for them to consider. Uh, Dr. Johan Grundeling is a medical doctor. Uh, His expertise in the areas of emergency medicine and forensic medical sciences. And he was beamed into court 13 through a live video and audio link. So he appeared on uh, the various large screens dotted around the courtroom. And he told the jury that he also holds a master's in medical toxicology. And up until the end of last year, he said he worked as a consultant in emergency medicine for the NHS. He has practiced medicine for almost two decades. And as an intensive care consultant, he said that he would have dealt with close to a thousand patients uh, per year. He, as you say, was called on behalf of the defence as an expert witness, which, as we've said previously on this podcast, uh, differs from ordinary witnesses in that they can give opinions uh, on their evidence, which a jury is then free to accept uh, or reject. And in relation to this case, uh, the doctor said that he was provided with Josef Pushka's medical records from his stay at St. James's Hospital in Dublin. Um, he said that he received a report from the surgeon who performed the operation on Mr. Pushka uh, on the evening of the 13th of January last year, which was the date of his admission to hospital. Um, he also had access to his GP records, uh, physio records from the hospital, as well as Mr. Pushka's 
custody record, his charge record, interview transcripts and the book of evidence. And in relation to all that material, he said Mr. Pushka was described as a healthy 31-year-old male with a history of back problems. He also referenced his GP records, which the prosecutor objected to. Yes, on the grounds that she hadn't seen them. And therefore, Ms. Anne-Marie Lawler said that she doesn't know the relevance of introducing them uh, through uh, his evidence. And the judge, Mr. Justice Tony Hunt, agreed, uh, told him to just stick to his report. So Dr. Grundling then went on to say that um, a CT scan on Mr. Pushka revealed potential deep injuries. Uh, He had been admitted to hospital with apparent stab wounds and the doctor said that a surgery was required to repair those wounds. He was put under with a general anaesthetic, uh, woke at uh, half past 10 that night. He was then sent to the recovery ward where he was checked on uh, multiple times throughout the night. And he, like Professor Michael Ryan, um, you may remember, he was the expert in toxicology and pharmacology, was called on behalf of the prosecution on day 10 of this trial. And he gave a rundown of the medication given to uh, Mr. Pushka after his surgery. And specifically in relation to the opioid painkiller, oxycodone, um, Dr. Grundling said that Mr. Pushka was given two one milligram doses of it intravenously after his operation. And a few hours later then, in the early hours of the following morning, he said he was given a five milligram tablet of oxy. He got the same dosage at 11.38 that morning. And as the jury has already heard, um, he spoke with Mr. Pushka, that is, spoke with two detectives from the investigation team in uh, the hospital less than an hour later. Um, This witness said that he was then given another five milligram tablet of oxy just after half past three in the afternoon and another just after four o'clock. And Dr. Grundling also listed the other drugs that Mr. Pushka was given, like paracetamol and ibuprofen. But during the relevant time uh, between half past six and 6.48 that evening, he said that the only medication that would have been still in uh, Mr. Pushka's system was the oxycodone. And when giving patients painkillers like oxycodone, he said they'd often start at a low dose to see if it's tolerated. If there's still pain after that low dose, he said they'd often rapidly increase dosage to the point where pain is controlled and side effects are minimised. Yes, for optimum benefit, he said. And he also listed the potential side effects of oxy as anxiety, confusion, depression, insomnia, abnormal thinking and sedation. And as I said earlier, um, the doctor was working off Mr. Pushka's medical records, which he said showed no record of him being confused, uh, disorientated or hallucinating. He then spoke of the potential effect that waking up in an unfamiliar environment can have on a patient. In his experience, Dr. Grundling said a combination of waking up in that unfamiliar environment, uh, a language barrier, pain and confusion can lead to a patient becoming distress. He said uh, a difficulty to communicate with staff can be very distressing. Uh, He said that it can lead to a patient feeling isolated and and vulnerable in cases where uh, they can't ask for help or they can't explain how they're feeling. Um, He was asked if he has observed this himself. He said that he has. Um, He was asked how it manifests. And I should say again, as a defence witness, all of these questions were being put to him by Mr. Pushka's barrister, Michael Bowman, who had who had called Dr. Gundling as a witness in the first instance. And he was asked how it manifests. He said a distress manifests as frustration and an altered perception of what people are trying to do to help them. He said that if somebody can't tell you they're in pain, he said that can cause a lot of distress, 
worry, concern, and that when combined, when combined rather, uh, with medication, um, an unfamiliar environment, etc., he said that can lead to agitation, aggression, and or confusion. Dr. Grunling went on to say that the absence of family members in such a situation can increase levels of distress. And while he was speaking in general terms initially, he then turned his attention specifically to Mr. Pushka's case. He did. And and in relation to that, he said that he had concerns about the reliability of Mr. Pushka's engagement with Gardaí on the 14th of January last year for a number of reasons, including the effects the surgery the night previous would have had on Mr. Pushka. Again, that unfamiliar environment and the language barrier. Um, he noted that the confession um, was made 18 hours after that operation and that he was given oxy in the hours leading up to that engagement with the detectives and that he may have been susceptible to the effects of opioids. He said that Mr. Pushka had been given 20 milligrams of oxy uh, with the last dose administered two and a half hours before the evening conversation with the Gardaí. This was the conversation during which he said to have uh, made the admissions. Um, he also noted uh, that there was no record of Mr. Pushka's doctors being present to assess if he was fit uh, to speak with the Gardaí. And in relation to that, he said that he was of the opinion that because of the oxy, he was not in a fit state to be interviewed that afternoon. He accepted the dosage given wasn't excessive, uh, but he said that he wasn't assessed for side effects, which could have impaired his fitness uh, to be interviewed. And again, just to be clear, uh, Mr. Pushka um, was, he had a conversation with Gardaí uh, that afternoon and again in the evening time. And it's that conversation in the evening time uh, that he is said to have made uh, the admissions. Uh, Dr. Grundling went on to say that he would have expected doctors to have um, been consulted in relation to his fitness to be interviewed, but he said they weren't. And had he been, he said he would have expected a formal assessment, which would have looked at a number of areas, including uh, Mr. Pushka's ability to uh, take in information, uh, to retain that information, to weigh it up and to make a decision based on it, and also to communicate that decision in an effective way. And he told the jury today that if a, if a patient can do those four things convincingly, then they are deemed fit for interview. During his time working in emergency rooms in the UK, Dr. Gunding said he would regularly make such assessments for the police. And again, according to the records he received, he said that didn't happen before members of the investigation team spoke to Mr. Pushka in hospital. Mm -hmm. And in conclusion, he said there were multiple factors that could have influenced his ability to give a reliable account. Uh, yes, uh, four in total, um, according to the witness. The uh, recent operation, which he said could have led to a sudden delirium. He said that's a very common complication after surgery that can lead to confusion and is something they have to actively exclude, usually within 48 hours of surgery. Another factor, according to Dr. Grundling, uh, was the unfamiliar environment that Mr. Pushka found himself in. He said that adds to distress, is a cause for concern, uh, again, when combined with other factors in this case, as he said, the language barrier and the opioid medication that he received. And that concluded the doctor's evidence in chief. The prosecuting barrister, Ms. Anne-Marie Lawler, then cross-examined him and she began by asking him about her own expert witness, Professor Michael Ryan. That's right. He took the stand last Tuesday and Dr. Grundling confirmed today that he received uh, Professor Ryan's report in September. Um, he was asked if Professor Ryan's expertise is unparalleled. Um, we heard that he is 
an expert in toxicology and pharmacology. And Dr. Grundling said that he assumed so. He was then asked specifically about the question mark uh, that he has raised over the, the confession made by Mr. Pushka again on the evening of the 14th of January last year, two days after he is alleged to have murdered Ashleen Murphy. And he was asked if his opinion was based on speculation, speculation of the possibility that there was an issue. Yes, I think that's fair, uh, he said. He also accepted that his findings were based primarily on the amount of oxy uh, in Mr. Pushka's system. And he was asked if his entire report was predicated on Yosef Pushka having 20 milligrams of the opioid in his system and the possible side effects of that. Yes, uh, he replied to Ms. Lawler, who then put it to him that the most Mr. Pushka could have had in his system when he made the admission was just over eight milligrams and that his report was therefore based on the wrong dosage. That's correct. Yes, was the doctor's reply. At this point, Ms. Lawler turned her attention to other factors referenced in his report. She asked him if he had ever worked in an Irish hospital and he confirmed that he hasn't. He was asked if he would help the police if they asked about a patient's injuries. He said that he would if he had the patient's consent. And if he didn't have consent, he said he'd have to look at whether there was another lawful reason that would allow him to give the details. Yeah, and um, Ms Lawler then focused on his opinion that the hospital would have been an unfamiliar environment for Mr Pushka. And she asked him if that was speculation and assumption on his part. She accused him of not knowing anything about Mr Pushka's familiarity uh, with hospitals. And the witness agreed that it was purely speculative and that he didn't know uh, if Mr Pushka was familiar with uh, that environment. And in relation to uh, whether or not he was confused, um, Dr. Grundling accepted that there was no record by hospital staff of Josef Pushka being confused at any point during his time at St. James's Hospital. And then it was put to him by uh, Ms. Lawler that there was nothing to suggest that he was confused or disorientated. And again, the witness agreed. But he said he thought it was important to, uh, to realise how these observations are often just box ticking in nature, was how he put it, and that the issue of confusion is more subtle and requires what he described as careful consideration. And Ms Lawler asked him if he thought the staff at St. James's Hospital were just ticking boxes when they checked on Mr Pushka. And he said that he wasn't saying that that's what happened, uh, but in his experience, he said it can happen. Uh, Ms Lawler followed that by saying that she was surprised that he would suggest such a thing, and she asked him if there was anything that he could point to to uh, support this suggestion, and he said no, uh, that he believed what they had recorded in the hospital was accurate. And that was the last exchange between Ms Lawler and the defence's final witness. And once she resumed her seat, Mr Bowman then came back in with a couple of follow-up questions for his witness. He did. Um, he asked uh, Dr Grundling what he would have done if Mr Pushka was in his care. Uh, and again, just to point out that he is he is based in the UK um, under cross-examination. He confirmed that he has never worked in, in an Irish hospital. Um, but he said that, you know, if he found himself in these circumstances, he said he would have needed to um, see the patient in person in order to actively exclude the possibility of social confusion. Um, he said that he would have preferred to see him himself in order to make his own determination rather than uh, relying on, on colleagues. Um, especially, he said, if he was the one making the decision in relation to his fitness to be interviewed by the police. And 
Uh, Mr. Bowman then asked him if he had come across any reference uh, in the guard of files that he was provided with um, of Mr. Pushka becoming distressed during an interaction on the 13th of January uh, with Gardaí or of a nurse having to respond to his heart monitor alarm going off. And in relation to that, he said that he hadn't. He was also asked if he had come across any guard the reference of him being distressed uh, during an interaction with them uh, after lunchtime the following day on the 14th of January. He said that he hadn't. And he was also asked if he had come across any Agartha reference um, in this extensive file that he was given um, relating to distress uh, during the evening interaction with the Gardaí, during which he's he's alleged to have made that admission again. That's that's also on the 14th of January last year. And again, the witness said that that he hadn't. And that was that. The link to Dr. Grundling was closed. The screens around the courtroom faded to black before Mr. Bowman told the jury that the defence had concluded its case. And with the prosecution having closed its case last week, that's all of the evidence in the case. Once again, the jury was sent off for an early lunch and told they wouldn't be required again until tomorrow morning when the trial will enter its final stages. Yeah, that's it. In terms of the evidence anyway, that's it. Um, Mr Justice Hunt addressed the jurors before sending them away for the day. Closing speeches will get underway in the morning. So the judge decided it was it was best that everybody starts fresh in the morning In relation to those closing speeches, the prosecution will go first. Uh, The defence will then be given an opportunity to speak to the men and women of the jury for a final time. And I should say, um, closing speeches like the prosecution's opening address is not evidence. Uh, The jury now has all of the evidence in the case. Uh, Closing speeches are basically an opportunity for the barristers to make their arguments in relation to the facts. Um, As the judge pointed out today, both sides are expected to finish their speeches tomorrow. And once they do, Mr. Justice Tony Hunt will then address the jury for a final time. And once that's done, they'll then be sent out to begin deliberations. That could happen as early as Wednesday or perhaps Thursday morning. Um, They've heard everything in the case now. Um, They won't be put under any time pressure when it comes to their deliberations. And as Mr. Justice Hunt put it to them uh, this afternoon, they can take as long or as short as necessary. So we have now entered the final stages and the case will soon be left in the hands of the nine men and three women on this jury. That's it for episode 15 of All Rise, the Ashling Murphy murder trial. With both sides now finished calling evidence, closing speeches will get underway tomorrow with the prosecution due to go first when the jury returns in the morning. I'm Frank Rainey, Courts Correspondent for News Talk. I'll be in court tomorrow morning and for every day that's left in this trial. And you can follow me on X at Frank Rainey for updates and make sure you follow this podcast. All rise, the Ashley Murphy murder trial for an impartial and comprehensive account of what happens in court on any given day. All rise, the Ashley Murphy murder trial was hosted by Frank Graney and Ashley Moore with sound design by Lachlan Hart. Follow the podcast on Newstalk.com, on the Newstalk app, powered by Go Loud, or wherever you get your podcasts.